Hi everybody, welcome to session three of our journey through the book of Hebrews. Now last week the session was a little on the short side because I was just dealing with four verses, the introductory verses to the book, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4. Today it's going to be a little bit longer because I want to deal with from verse 4 through to chapter 2 verse 4. So 4 to chapter 2 verse 4. Let me just put up on the screen the actual structure. Now, you're familiar with this from the introductory session one. And I've dealt with the introduction last week. Now we're starting on the first section of the doctrine part. Jesus, our superior prophet. And so in this session, I'm dealing with how Jesus is superior to prophets and to angels. And the very solemn warning, the first of five, which occurs in this section. And then how not only is Jesus superior to normal men and women, but, but he also ministers to us from, from his position of superiority and centrality. He, in fact, ministers to us. And um, that's a lovely thought and a lovely truth, and we will have a look at that today. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 through to 13. Now it talks about, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, what's the reason for this abrupt change from prophets, which was last week, how he's superior to the prophets of the Old Testament, through to angels? Well, the answer is quite simple. And once again, I want to just put it up on the screen for you so you can have a look at that. You know, uh, I've repeated this story a number of times, and some of you would have heard it. But a long time ago, when my wife and I started a cell group for a little church in Port Elizabeth, and uh, I was leaving a teaching, it didn't matter what the teaching was about. I might have been going through the Gospel of John or the Book of Revelation or whatever. And the one lady there would always say, but Chris, what about the angels? <laughs> and I'd have to kind of politely put her off. But what about the angels? Well, the Old Testament word for angel is malak. And in the New Testament, the word for angel is angelos. And both mean exactly the same thing. Both, word, both words mean messenger. So the main function of angels is to convey God's word. And so they are, in a sense, prophets, maybe in the very true sense of the word. Supernatural beings who convey God's will and word into the world. Angels. Malak. Angelos. Now the Jews regarded angels very highly. But here in this section of Hebrews, Paul is saying that Jesus is superior to them. They are mighty, they are wonderful, they are strong, they are wise. But Jesus is greater than all. And the fact that it talks about he has a name that is superior to theirs. Well, his name indicates his authority, and his name indicates his superiority. See, Jesus is the Son. Angels are the servants. And then in verses 6 to 13, it goes on and highlights the differences between Jesus and the angels. And in total, there are seven Old Testament quotes. In verses 6 to 7, it shows us that angels worship Jesus and are his servants. In verses 8, 9, and 13, it talks about Jesus being on the throne, and angels are not on the throne. And then verses 10 to 12, 
Jesus existed eternally before angels were created and he in fact was the one through whom all things were created and then in verse chapter 1 verse 14 of Hebrews is the prime description of angels and says are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation well question who are those who are to inherit salvation? And what is the salvation? Why does it have to be inherited? Well, you see, salvation is not yet complete. Salvation really has three phases. We can look at it in that sense. There is the rebirth of the spirit. That's the beginning of the salvation. When a human being commits his life to Jesus, asks the Holy Spirit to give him a new birth of the spirit, where that spirit comes alive on him, and he commits that and he confesses it and he yields himself to God then the spirit breathes life into him and he is born again of the spirit as a disciple of Jesus that's phase one sanctification is phase two that's the rest of our lives on earth so I was born again at the age of 30 and I'm now 74 so that means I've 44 years I've been in the process of sanctification and sanctification is really nothing more and nothing less than being transformed from our old sinful selves into beings, men and women, who are in the image of Jesus. It's all about being as much like Jesus in this lifetime. We can't really do that much about it, but we can agree, we can obey, we can yield, we can ask, and we can follow him seek to be like him in this world but then there's a third phase of salvation that's called glorification that's in the end and i think we're approaching the end quite rapidly now jesus will come again with the clouds of glory and the whole church that's in heaven already and he'll bring this age to an end and he will rework and remake and recreate a combination of heaven and earth together and heaven will come to earth and earth will become like heaven and he will give his followers glorified bodies and we will be like the angels in that sense for a while human beings are inferior to angels in this lifetime but in the resurrection we arise not inferior actually as children of the almighty god and not just servants of almighty god Yes, we are the ones who are to inherit salvation. Let me read to you what uh, Jesus said here in Matthew 19, verses 28 to 29. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, that's right at the very end, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that's Jesus, of course, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Now he was talking to Jews, so he was talking about judging over the tribes of Israel, etc. But the essence of it is that wonderful honored place of being daughters and sons of the Most High God who sit enthroned with them in a new creation, a new heaven earth. And live with them, ruling and reigning with them for time, eternity. Yeah, 
let's just go back to that slide. I talked there and showed there at the bottom of it, Psalm 91 verse 11. And I'm going to come on to that in one second. So the point here is that angels serve and they minister to the sons and daughters of God. Now, that's a very important thing. God instructs them to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. If we're born again, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then angels are dispatched, instructed, sent by Jesus to minister to us in this lifetime. And we, as sons and daughters, are ones who minister to each other, to the world, and to God himself. You could look at it this way. You could say that angels minister to us in order that we might minister to each other, the world, and God. Giving and ministry is wrapped up in the entire eternal cosmic plan of Almighty God. And that's a wonderful, wonderful truth. So here's a question. Given that angels minister to us, should we communicate with them or try to? And should we indeed even instruct them? You know, there's all the books uh, written. I, I downloaded a free book of Kindle the other day about angels, and I thought, oh, that should be quite interesting. And I got so upset because it was all about how his personal angels, and he instructed them, and he told them what to do. And no, listen to Psalm 91, verse 11. For he, that's God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And then... Look at the context in your own time on this one, verses 9 to 16. You'll see the actual content of it. No, it is God who instructs. It's God who commands. We ask. We say, please, Lord, see our need. Help us here. And it is he who dispatches his ministering spirits, angels, to guard us in all our ways. Okay, now we progress on to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Now, this is the first of five very solemn warnings, and we need to take it extremely, extremely seriously. The context of this warning is the great salvation in Jesus, and it's declared to us by him and his messengers. And the context is also those first Jewish readers, that first audience were Jewish Christians who under immense pressure to revert to Judaism. And to revert to Judaism, they would be called upon to renounce Jesus, to renounce their new birth, to say, I will have nothing of this. It's all myth. It's all no, no, no. I'm not a Christian. I'm with you guys again. You are my heritage and my inheritance. Very, very drastic. And so he was warning them, but he also warns us in these days. And it's very relevant to us as well. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Okay, let me read it to you. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how then will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. 
God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Well, first one uses that word drift away. Now, that means carelessly passing by. I could also be used of a ship, a little boat, let's say, that's tied to the dock or tied to a larger vessel and that not comes loose and it drifts away on the current. It's kind of like a carelessness that causes drifting away from the center. And it's the first of five expressions used in the book of Hebrews, which describe what we normally call apostasy, which is a falling away from the faith. It starts with a backsliding. It's a not rather um, strange little word that's in Christianity. And that would be very similar to this word, drift away. So it first starts about drifting away. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, he writes about turning away. And then in chapter 6, verse 6, falling away. So there's the drifting, the turning, the falling. And then in chapter 10, verse 26, talks about if we deliberately keep on sinning. And then finally, the fifth warning, chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse God. What starts with a careless drifting away ends with a refusing God and turning our faces against him and renouncing him and his wonderful salvation. If you look at verse 2 there, I'll leave this on the screen so you can just follow along in case you don't have your Bible open with you. Verse 2 says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. Now, what does this refer to? The message spoken by angels was binding, and the violations and the disobedience were going to be punished. Now, what would he be referring to? Well, I think a Jewish listener would probably understand this. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this, The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Now, Moses was the mediator, but it gives us a piece of information not found elsewhere. You see, the Jewish belief at the time was that the angels were used by God to present the tablets to Moses, and in some way they were part of the transmission of the law. Acts chapter 7, verse 53 here it says, You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. So the angels were part of giving the law to Israel, and when Israel turned away from it, they were punished. And so this solemn warning is saying to us, you know what? If the angels put into practice through Moses the great law of Israel, and any violations of that were really severely punished, how much more would we expect if we slip away, turn away, fall, renounce, and forsake such a great salvation? But I'd like to focus on verse 4 for a moment, because it has real practical implication for us. Verse 4 talks about being attested to by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
Now in the church of our, our day, there are a number of different ways of looking at a passage like this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, Paul sets out exactly what are these gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church, and what are the ministries that involve these gifts. But there are some say that this only applied to the early, early, early Christians, and as soon as the canon of Scripture was completed, then there was no more need for that. Now, there is absolutely nothing in Scripture which would make us even think this. This is a, the outworking of, of some strange doctrine which doesn't have its origin in the Scriptures at all. And it also defeats logic. I think it's coming to the church largely because of the abuses that we have seen in the last 50 years or so. When people try and counterfeit the gifts of the Holy Spirit, when people try and manipulate them towards their own ends. Now, clearly, that is um, more than stupidity. That's a form of blasphemy. And it's really quite futile because no matter how a human being might try and reproduce a spiritual gift, he cannot, for the power of God comes from the Spirit of God. He breathes it into us. We are receptacles of his energizing power, his anointing. But he is the source. We cannot generate it ourselves. If we try and abuse his gifting, it's just a matter of time before he stops giving. And we are empty barrels making an awful loud noise when we clatter about. So the manipulation and the counterfeits that we have seen, the abuses of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I think have caused portions of the traditional church to, to shy so far away that they no longer recognize the gifting in the church today. And that's a tragedy, because Paul is, goes to absolute pains to express how the Holy Spirit gives these gifts to us, what they're for, how they help the church, how they enliven the church, direct the church, and build the church up. And we want to throw that away? Really? That cannot be. There should be control. There must be responsibility. There must be a dependence on the Holy Spirit. But he has given these for the upbuilding, the anointing, and the enlivening of his people for the church. And we must embrace them, not push them away. Just refresh your minds again by uh, just turning, not now, just later on, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and read about these wonderful gifts. And then turn to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians and read about how they're to be applied in the church of our day. Okay, so now uh, I want to go to the last point of this whole passage. It starts in Hebrews chapter 2 and from 15 through to 18. It follows these solemn warnings to us and solemn instructions. So I'd like to take you to that. And then we can go through that in the same way as we went through the scriptures just now. There they are on your screen. Now, in this last section, it's under comparing Jesus to prophets and angels. It shows his superiority over human beings, over us as well. He's not just superior to the Old Testament prophet or superior to angels. He's superior to us. But in his glorious superiority, he condescends to us and he ministers to us and he loves us. The, the wonder is that he who is God himself is prepared to be just like us. 
so that he can help us. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to walk through this life, help us to minister to others in his glorious name. Now, I'm not going to read this whole section. You can see it's quite long. It starts at verse 5 and goes through to verse 18. But I want to pick up on the verses that I've highlighted in red font. Now, they might be a little bit uh, small for you to follow. But um, I'm sure you can just turn up that passage in your scripture and you can just be alerted to where they are. You see, the first of them are the words there which says, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus. See, it's talking in this passage about how Jesus is superior to all things. He's above all things and he has everything under his control. He holds all together by the power of his word. And then we look at the world and we say, Hey, excuse me? I see chaos, I see corruption, I see mayhem, I see murder, I see sin, I see a falling apart, I see us galloping towards the end, faster than the four horses of the apocalypse can go. What, what does this mean? Well, it means that in truth, Jesus is above all things. But part of his plan and design for the universe is to grant his children meaningful discretion. I avoid using the word free choice because I don't think there's anybody on this earth who has an absolutely free choice. I mean, we are born into races. We are born into families. We are subject to things that happen to us that we don't make decisions about. Now, freedom of choice in its pure sense is a bit of a myth, but we are granted meaningful discretion. He refuses to enslave our wills. He has not turned us into automatons. We are not flesh robots. We are not actual artificial intelligences in disguise. We are children of the Most High God. If we do not have the ability to withhold love, what value would our love for each other and for Him be? If we did not have the ability to refuse Him, what value would there be to us obeying Him? We do have a meaningful degree of discretion. And so as a result of this, the world itself is chaotic in many senses. For there are so many millions of people who have not yet come to know him and who are living in their sinful, wicked selfishness. And the decisions they make and the things that they bring about and the leadership they give and the technology they create and the teaching they bring into this world and the examples they give to children or like a poison stream into the pure, pure river of life. But we see Jesus. Yes, there will come a time when we will see that all is under him, as has been promised. But right now, that's not the case. Yet, with the eyes of faith, we look to Jesus, and we see the perfection of God. We see the one who sits on the throne in the center of all things. Now repeat the verse. At present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus. And then in verses 14 through 15, it talks about how he came to destroy the works of the devil. Let's read that to you. By his death, that he might destroy him who holds the power of death, 
that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, the way that that, that reads in most translations kind of means like he's he's done away with the devil, the devil doesn't exist, he's been destroyed. No, that, that's not the sense of what is being said here. Uh, much better to understand it as render ineffective, because that's the essence meaning of the Greek word there. He has come to render ineffective the work of the devil. The New Living Translation actually puts it perfectly. It says, he's come to break the power of the devil. And he did this by means of dying, becoming a person, a man, dying on the cross of Calvary, giving up his life, and then rising again, so that his resurrected life conquers the grave. Death, where is your sting? Writes Paul. Because the power of death has been broken. He is the new template which broke the old one, which said, death is inevitable. From the days of Adam onwards, death has ruled this world. And people fear death. Because death is inevitable. It's sometimes painful. The process of growing old is uh, really not for sissies, as as I'm finding out every every month nearly now. And those who don't know Jesus fear it. It's the great unknown. It's what is it? Is it a, a snuffing out? Is it a ceasing to be? Is it a is it a remaining separated for eternity from God? So people fear it, and the devil rules through that. He he holds the hearts and spirits and minds of unsaved people in bondage to him because of their fear of death. He is the little godlet of death, and he holds humanity. In slavery. Then Jesus comes and he says, No, I will take upon myself the penalty so that man can live again. He dies on Calvary for us and then he rises from the dead to say, See, death has no power over those who are born again of my spirit. And so that's why the promise to us is, Though we die, yet will we live. We live. Christ Jesus, it has no more power over us. And then verse 17 is the last verse we're going to cover in this session. And it's again a wonderful, wonderful verse. It talks about this. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He has become a man so that he can die as a man, so he could pay the price for all humanity. And he was made, therefore, like his brothers and sisters, that's humanity, in every way. But he also went through all the tests and trials and temptations. He never yielded to a temptation. He rose above them and showed us that we could too. But the word tempting and temptation here also means equally tested. He doesn't tempt us, for instance. God never tempts, but he does test. Sometimes temptations are the means of testing. But the objective is not that we might fall, but that we might succeed to rise above the testing in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, to become more like him and to be able to be of more value and 
use to others, our brothers and sisters, who are going through this. This passage introduces the concept of Jesus as our high priest, but it only gets developed in a couple of sections from now. And I'll come to that in a few sections, a few sessions later. But it's just throwing this in. Jesus has earned the right to be called the perfect and great high priest, for he can minister in a priestly way to us. But the wonderful, wonderful thing is that because of his example, because of what he's done, because of what the Holy Spirit does for us right now, we can minister to others. And that's a glorious, a glorious and wonderful thought, isn't it? Okay, next week, we're going to do Hebrews 3, verses 1, right through to chapter 4, verse 30. And there we're going to be looking at Jesus, our superior king. Jesus is greater than the prophets, dealt with that. He's greater than the angels, as the first original prophets, really, messengers, spokespeople. And the next session deals with He's superior, superior to Solomon, superior to King David, superior to every king that has ever walked the planet Earth, whether under the Jewish regime or the secular. And the section also carries the second of the five solemn warnings. So please, won't you read ahead? Because uh, it would be great if your heart and my heart together can be prepared for it. Because as we go through these sections, especially those, those warnings, we can understand why he says this to us, how we can respond, and how through responding we can have security and life in his name. The warnings are not to beat us down. In fact, every warning in the book of Hebrews is accompanied by a matching affirmation to us. His will for us is that we would succeed and grow through and to the end inherit the fullness of our salvation. So we take the next step in understanding that next week. I'd like to just pray for us as a, as a group. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for his life on earth. Lord, thank you for coming to the earth. Thank you, my God, that you have shown us, died for us, risen for us, and that through the printed word, through your faithful messengers, you have inscribed for us, like in the book of Hebrews, the way of life, the way of salvation. And in that, you reveal yourself. Please, Lord, as I prepare for the next session, and as everyone who hears this prayer prepares their own hearts and spirits, won't you please anoint us to hear and to speak and to understand that this Bible study will not just be a experience of imparting information and receiving data, but will be a life-giving, life-transforming, life-transferring experience, so we may know Jesus more and learn to love him and each other more. And I do ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. See you next week. Bye for now.